pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today is show number 403, and we are in what I'm calling the Autism Podcast Series. So if you haven't listened to the first two shows in this series, go back and listen to those, even if you do it after this, so that you are caught up and we are all on the same page with talking about 12 of the very best evidence-based research interventions that we can do for young children who have red flags for autism or for those who have already been diagnosed. Now, if you're familiar with me and and with my work at teachmetotalk.com, you know that I primarily specialize, or not primarily, is it specialize in seeing toddlers and preschoolers. Even though this last year with COVID, I have started to see some older children because that's who God has steered toward our clinic and and let me have the privilege of working with. But honestly, my specialty would be little kids, so young children with red flags for autism. So if you are a therapist and have found this show on YouTube or on on a podcast and you're listening to it for the very first time, that's what you'll you'll know. So if you work with older children, if they are developmentally in this toddler preschooler age range and they are still nonverbal and there are still some issues with interaction and engagement with every fiber of my being I know that social games are the very best way to begin to treat a child with um, autism or, or suspected autism and here's why two of the core diagnostic features of autism are based on a child's differences in social skill development and if you have bought my new treatment manual, the Autism Workbook, uh, Developing Speech Therapy Treatment Plans for Toddlers and Preschoolers with Red Flags for ASD, take a look at this particular chapter because you're going to get such important information um, or evidence if you are a therapist with why we should be working on social games and why this is the beginning point for our therapy and our work with children. Uh, If we look at the DSM-5 diagnostic uh, characteristics of children with autism, we'll find two of them, deficits in social-emotional reciprocity, or that's the back-and-forth flow of interaction between two people as they communicate and share an experience. Children with autism have lots and lots of difficulty with that. They're either flat or non-reactive, or their sensory systems are so hyped up that they need to be hyped up because they're hypo-responsive, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, that that they're so busy doing other things that they miss the social connection with other people. So again, this is one of the core features of autism. This is why they get that autism diagnosis. So we have to find out uh, developmentally appropriate ways to address this sort of thing. And social games really, really fit the bill with this. And then the second core diagnostic feature of autism uh, based on a child's differences in social skill development would be deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. So again, it's not just that they that their attention isn't always there to do it because of their other sensory issues which are driving them to do other things or to block out incoming sensory information like we talked about but it's beyond that they really have difficulty sometimes with the motivation or with the reasons or those natural inherent characteristics that are in all of us who make us want to interact with other people and who get that. And so again, sometimes a child has with autism has difficulty matching his own behavior to a social setting. It's this place that he needs to sit down and and be quiet or it might be a space that he's he needs to he, he needs to join in with other people but he just can't do that or a child who has problems with sharing imaginative play with another child that is going to be hard to get to imaginative play unless you get some of these other earlier developmental things going first and lots of us as parents or as early intervention professionals know that we should be doing these things with children and certainly we do them with typically developing babies we play things like pat cake and we play other little games with them like peekaboo because we know that that's how children 
first begin to really, really, really respond and really do their part as they play with us in these little routines. And so many of our little friends with autism, practically all of them, (laughs) have missed those opportunities. They may have done it really early, and then for whatever reason, they've stopped, which we kind of see. Sometimes parents will say, you know, he used to play peekaboo with me when he was six months old, but now he doesn't really uh, do that anymore. And so, again, sometimes we're going to have to back up to this developmental level so that we can pick up where a kid is. And that's what we talked about in uh, last show, 402, is meeting a child where he or she is. And this is just another facet of that treatment approach. And so if you're a therapist and you follow my work for a long time, you know that these two things, and I say it so clearly in uh, my new treatment manual, the Autism Workbook, these two areas, meeting a child where he is and then introducing social games are just the make or break treatment approaches that we need to use with young children with autism. So if you are seeing a child right now on your caseload that's already been diagnosed with autism or you highly suspect it, and again, if you need some help with with looking at those characteristics and knowing what those are, go back and listen to show 401 because I take the DSM-5 criteria and I walk you step by step by step by step through that criteria so that you understand what it takes for a child to receive that diagnosis of autism, When whether it's through a team evaluation or whether it's a child's um, personal pediatrician or physician who's working with his parents and him, however he gets that diagnosis, or if it's with you as a speech-language pathologist, and you know, based on your clinical experience and based on the diagnostic criteria that this child has autism, you know, again, no matter what, you're going to be able to walk through that criteria and know yourself. So take a look at that. Or if you are a parent watching this and you've stumbled on this because the a tag says speech therapy for kids with autism or suspected autism or kid who's not talking however you got here and you're really worried about autism go back and listen to or watch show number 401 explaining autism to parents so that you will understand those differences and again these two approaches that we've talked about in last show at 402 and this show with 403 this is the meat this is the starting point for nearly every child with autism. And as I started to say before, if there's a kid on your caseload who's not making progress, that you are just frustrated with your own inability to get anything accomplished, start over. Listen to that show last week or watch it with looking at where we meet a child where he is. And there are two big parts of that. That's determining a child's current developmental level so that you are not working at a level well above where he is so that he cannot be successful. So no wonder he wants to get away from you because you are trying to do things that are just impossible for him. So we have to look at that developmental level and then we have to uh, be so super in tune to what his own personal preferences are for the very beginning so that we, again, are not driving him away from us. We are bringing him to us. We are joining him. And for so many kids, again, with autism, letting somebody in to share their that personal experience or that, that fun uh, toy or or a daily routine to let somebody in and to really, really connect and communicate with them. This is where we start. It's not by teaching them something new. It's with something that they already do. All right, so we talked about that. With That's the first approach, meet a child where he or she is. And then in this show, it's just this next little rung up, which is introducing social games. And again, there is no better way to go straight to the heart of autism and treating autism and helping a child begin to make real differences than helping him learn how to communicate. And let me give you five ways that research tells us that social games are an effective strategy and an effective starting point for toddlers with autism. First of all, social games meet a child's sensory needs. So I started talking about this a second ago when I introduced the term hypo-responsive, or I might have said hyper-reactive. So let's just talk about the hypo and hyper and talk about those things. Children with autism 
usually kind of fall at other at ends of opposite ends of the spectrum, even with sensory issues. So if you're thinking about autism as a spectrum disorder, hyperreactive and hyporeactive. Hyperreactive kids are kids that are thought to be overly sensitive. They really overreact to incoming stimuli. So these are children who uh, might put their hands over their ears with a fire alarm or when they hear you sing <laughs> or when they uh, hear or see or taste or feel anything that feels just icky to them that makes them feel off. And again, these are children which really, really um, are avoiders. They may even avoid with foods. They may only eat two or three white foods, and that's all a parent can get them to eat. And again, these are kids who are hyper-reactive to any little, uh, or not little, but any sensation that's coming in. So like I said, all the things that we see, that we touch, that we feel, that we hear, and that we smell and taste. And so um, we, we think about those kids. These are kids, again, that are intentionally and even... Um, unintentionally because it's the way that their systems are designed trying to stop and get away from uh, being overloaded and overwhelmed and overstimulated bombarded by things that don't make sense to them and that don't make them feel good the other end of that are children who are hyporeactive now these are children that are generally generally undersensitive and underreactive so it's kind of easy to get this confused, but when children are hyporeactive, what do they try to do? They try to get more. They want more. These are the kids who are constantly on the go, who are running and jumping and sliding and climbing and squishing and do, doing everything that they can to just get help their bodies feel better and just to get more of that sensation hopefully again to help them eventually begin to calm down and so and feel right so uh, these are kids who are known as sensory seekers so hyporeactive kids and with the hyperreactive kids that we talked about previously the kids that are kind like no 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 those are sensory avoiders so if we think about these two kinds of kids and research tells us um, again you can look in uh, your autism workbook and see the specific reference for this but there's a study that says seven 70 to 90% of children with autism display uh, difficulties with sensory processing and sensory regulation. In my own everyday practice, I would agree with that. I would, I would be up there more like 100%. I'm not sure I've met a kid with autism that I've worked with who hasn't had pretty significant sensory processing and sensory regulation differences. So social games help us meet a child's sensory needs because we're going to give them what they what they need. So if they're craving lots of movement, we give them movement in, in a social game. If they are craving a close contact because they want that the incoming uh, sensory uh, stimuli shut off. We're going to give that to them in a social game. And so again, super, super way to address that. And if you need more of an explanation, you can, you can read that in the autism workbook. The second reason that social games are the way that we treat uh, social skill difficulty or social skill development with children with autism is that social games provide a framework or a structure, in other words, a better way <laughs> to teach a child a new skill. And again, because children have a preference for sameness when uh, that's one of the characteristics of autism. They, they like things to be the same. They like, they don't necessarily process new events or, or new experiences like we would expect them to do or like children with typically developing systems do. And so when we can teach them a little game, we're providing something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and they know what's coming. It's not, uh, they're not afraid of or, or uh, fearful or, or reluctant to participate because they know it and they like it, that sameness, that routine. So social games can do that, especially when you're having difficulty getting in. And you know what I mean by that as a parent or as a therapist. When you when a child is, again, is just so locked in what he wants to do and so... Um, just again radar focused on whatever it is that he's paying attention to and you have a hard time getting him to let you show him things or you have a hard time getting him to uh 
you know, he wants to flip the pages in the book, but you don't get to read the book together. And so, again, you need a framework. You need something that he can learn and participate and like and let you be a part of. So social games do that, too. The third reason social games are a great uh, starting point for kids with autism is that they give a, a child a chance to learn to do his part while he's having fun. So what do I mean by do his part? Okay, this is where kids, again, in the context of a little game, they learn that it's time to clap their hands. They learn that it's time to raise their hands. They learn that it's time to touch their shoulders if you're singing a song like head, shoulders, knees, and toes. And what are they doing with that? Well, first of all, they're doing motor imitation. So they've learned to copy what you're doing. And honestly, without motor imitation, a child doesn't get to verbal imitation. And so this is another way that we can we can teach a child with autism or red flags for autism something that's inherently hard for him. For uh, imitation comes pretty naturally in children with typically developing systems because they watch other people and they want to communicate and interact with other people and then they begin to copy. Because of that social skill difficulty that we've already talked about with kids with autism, they don't have that inherent or that built-in drive and motivation to necessarily stay with another person to, uh, and then if they're not staying with another person and that social connection is not there, they sometimes don't get to imitation. And then once they, if they get there and want to do that socially, sometimes their motor systems really don't work as we would expect. And so they have difficulty with what we call motor planning. So again, sometimes their their uh, even motor imitations may be off. You may be trying to teach them a sign like more and they end up just doing something completely um, you, you know they're trying, but it's really, really off target. And so using social games help a child kind of pull all those pieces together and help him learn how to do his part with imitation while he's having fun. So that's another reason. The fourth way that social games are so effective in helping teach a child with autism uh, initially in speech therapy is that they help a child become purposefully verbal. So what do I mean by that? That's by uh, learning verbal routines. And we talk a lot about that in this book in Focus 6 with teaching imitation. And goodness, I have written another whole book and another whole course about teaching a child how to imitate. But this is specifically related to children with autism. Sometimes it's just in this the course of a little social game that they first begin to verbalize purposefully. So they first begin to try to say words to fill in. Now, some of that is because of a child's uh, with autism's natural or their, their tendency to have echolalia. Don't panic about that if you're a speech pathologist because sometimes we get so scared about echolalia and we, we think, gosh, he's just parroting. He's just imitating what he's heard. There's no meaning there. Yes, that's important. We've got to back up and get the meaning. We've got to help them understand, uh, you know, receptive language for a child to be a functional communicator. He has to understand what the words that he's saying. And so many times with kids with autism, we see that their expressive skills exceed their receptive skills. And so, again, and this is a, a pattern that we don't see in kids with typical development, but we do see it a lot in kids with autism. And so sometimes you think, okay, I'm teaching him all these verbal routines, and my goodness, it sort of leads like, it sort of sounds like I'm leading him to be echolalic. Many, many, many children, I can't remember the specific percentage right now, but I think it's like 75 or 80% of children who, and it's in the autism workbook, I can't believe I can't recall that, that piece of data. But most children who are verbal, who have autism started out echolalic or had lots and lots of jargon that turned into echolalia. And we'll talk about that a lot as we continue the autism podcast series and we specifically talk about how to address um, echolalia and jargon. But my point here right now, this early on is it, it's a foot in the door. It is a way to teach a child how to begin to purposefully vocalize and we talked about echolalia in that kids well let's just say this kids with echolalia are talking but not communicating meaning that they're verbal you understand it but there's no you can't really under you you can't really assign what uh, the meaning is other than they like the movie that they copied it from or they like the book and so it does something for them. It calms them down, it peps them up, it makes them happy. We don't know. They can't tell us uh, until they can talk what that reason is or, or what 
specifically for that child is. But we know if we can get them saying some words purposefully, oh, it's so much better than not talking at all, right? And so social games, again, give us that framework. All right, and the last reason, evidence-based reason, that we use social games for kids with autism is that this is their our first way to teach them uh, to be compliant. <laughs> so we're building compliance with, uh, first of all, that one-on-one -on -one interaction. You're going to do what we do this together. We're going to do the same thing. We're going we're gonna to stay playing this little game for however long amount of time that it is. But that's how they first start to learn to do that. And this helps children eventually learn how to participate in social situations and participate in peer with other peer in their peers and other little friends uh, in those play situations. And many, many, many times until we get this kind of back and forth, one-on-one -on -one, uh, reciprocity built into interaction with an adult who is compensating for them and who is doing to cueing them, doing everything we can to help them participate, they're not going to be able to get there with kids their own age because they just don't have that that interaction piece yet. So we have to help them. So those are five reasons, evidence-based reasons that using social games are, in a re are a really, really fantastic starting point for toddlers and preschoolers with signs of autism or with an autism diagnosis. And again, I've said it already, but I'm probably going to say it three or four more times before this hour show is over. If you are struggling with a kid with autism on your caseload, and you just have tried lots of other things, but you've never really, really, really given social games a shot, just stop. Just completely do your whole treatment plan. Just say to those parents, look, we're going to start over here. I've listened to this show or I've taken this course or read this book or however you want to say it, and I think this is the way we should go. I think we should stop. Uh, working on all this other stuff until we really, really get some nice social interaction going. And that can be hard to do. As a therapist, you might feel like that you've lost a little bit of credibility because you've started doing something and then now you're saying, hey, we're going to change our whole approach. But honestly, it's liberating because parents will see that you also know that this is not going as well as you want it to go. And they're thinking it and you're thinking it and you just need another you, you, you need a clean slate. You need a way to kind of start over. And, and if you have had problems with a child with behavior, with compliance, with, and, and as parents, you, you know, I hate those words too. And I don't focus on behavior and don't focus on compliance and, and those kinds of things at the beginning of therapy because it just causes problems. We need to find another way to do that without the discipline, without the punishment, without making a kid sit at a table when he is obviously miserable. We need a different way to do it. And so social games are certainly what we should do. They're, they're, a, they're a start over point. Even if, if, if it's not your starting point, it could be your start over point. So... That's, that's what I want to talk to you about. Now, I haven't really told you what social games are yet, and I hope that you figured it out when we, I've given you the examples with Patty Cake and Peekaboo, but social games are songs, rhymes, finger plays, any little early social routine that an adult does with play with a young child, particularly for the purpose of interacting and having fun together. So I've given you uh, those examples with Peekaboo and Patty Cake. It's also things like high five. It's also things like singing little songs like Wheels on the Bus or Itsy Bitsy Spider or Baby Shark or <laughs> whatever it is that you sing uh, with your child or that your child likes. So any kind of thing like that. So why, again, is it, a, I'm going straight from the handout and I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the show, therapists can get a one hour of continuing education credit for your licensure or your credentialing. Uh, for therapists or for early intervention professionals like teachers, developmental therapists, for just five bucks at teachmetotalk.com. If you are watching on YouTube, the link is there in the and the post that you can click on that and go to my website and purchase the CE credit. And then you'll also get this handout. And so I'm, I'm speaking directly from the handout because we're using this as our, our format for the Autism Podcast series where we talk about the differences in young children with autism uh, with what topic that we're speaking to in in this series and today's topic of course is social interaction but you can read here 
the description that we talked about with social games, and then the considerations. And we've already talked about this, but I want to say it one more time. This approach is an excellent starting point for any toddler with limited social engagement skills uh, for therapy or for a parent. If you're thinking, how do I do speech therapy at home? This is where you start with those social games. And I'll just tell you as therapist, this is this is really one of my little screeners that I use with children. How easily can I uh, get them to participate in one of these games with me? How, how easy how easy is it for them to begin to make eye contact with me or to stay with me for longer than 30 seconds or to even begin to try to do some motor imitations, so imitating some hand gestures or some hand motions or some body movements that we're doing. If I have a super, super hard time getting a kid involved with me at the beginning and staying with me in these little games, it really gives me an indication of how severe the social interaction problem is. And I kind of use it too with kids that I feel like are iffy, you know, am I really seeing red flags for autism or is this more a sensory-based thing? Is this really um, just strictly a motor planning um, problem? And and uh, there's a study that says 63% of children with apraxia, it's by Wadka, 2013, have, I may have misquoted that reference there, but have apraxia, so 63% of kids uh, with autism have apraxia. So when I'm looking at, okay, is this really just a motor planning thing or there's some social components too? And so if I can get a kid really, really engaged with me at the beginning with a lot of different social games, I, I feel less certain or less definitively that he's going to eventually get an autism diagnosis because I think, well, this social piece is coming together pretty nicely when I put some structure in here and when I when he's learned to do his part, all those things that we talked about with those five reasons that we play social games with kids or five reasons that research tells us that this is an effective strategy uh, to begin with with children with autism, I start to, I, I start, I, I really kind of confirms for me my own initial impressions. If they are easy and, and they like this with me, I think, okay, this may not be autism or this may be, you know, we may just have some quirks here that don't fall fully with an autism diagnosis. So I uh, just wanted to say that there. And I bet that as an, a therapist, if you're experienced, you start to feel that too. You start to think, well, I can pull him in. I can get these little things going. Now Now I've taught his parents how to get these games going. And now his preschool teacher is doing some of these games with him. And when a previously aloof, disconnected, socially disengaged child, meaning that everybody at preschool is sitting at the table doing snack, but you've got one kid up, you know, running circles around everybody else, and he won't ever sit for circle time, and he doesn't come do any of the structured activities. When we see a kid that we start to one-on-one get that social connection and get that participation and get that interaction really, really going, and he's coming to me. He wants to stay with me. He's initiating these games with me. He's pulling me up to play Ring Around the Rosies with him. He's holding his hand out for high five. He's trying to pull me down to play the night-night game with him. When a kid starts to do that kind of initiation with me, with his parents, and then he starts to do it with his preschool teachers too, whoo, amazing, because we have conquered that first huge barrier with autism, which is uh, a social interaction difference. So, again, that this is the reason... Uh, that we start with this because it's one of the diagnostic features of ASD. And let me say, too, it always requires direct intervention to get better. If you have had a child who is an avoider, like we talked about before, a sensory avoider or an interaction avoider, this is how we start. It's not by sitting them down and saying, you've got to look at me. You've got to stay with me. You have to sit here and play with me. It's even beyond, if you sit here and play with me with this, then we can go do that. It's before that. It's for the. This is for the kids for whom those techniques do not work, <laughs> starting with social games. And so what are we going to do? We're going to pick two or three easy games that we can remember, <laughs> that we can... T- And it's really, really important that you play the game in the same way and say the same things every single time. Because again, remember, we're building um, that familiarity piece. We want to make these games familiar to children. So that, remember, kids with autism prefer sameness. They prefer things they know. So you've got to do it the same way, especially in the beginning. Now, you you can have some variations and introduce some things later, which will be a lot of fun, so that a kid can realize that you're doing something different and then join in that fun. But 
for right now, you want to keep it as as predictable as you can so that kids who struggle with inflexibility and kids who might seem a little bit rigid in their expectations that again those are all hallmarks of autism and so we want to give them that we want to play into that so we're going to pick a few of these little games and we're going to repeat them many times through the day and so this is why this is important for us as therapists with teaching parents what works for kids we can't be there all day every day so we've got to teach parents how to carry over these same little games but it's really really important for you as a therapist that you are talking to parents about how much of a time commitment this is going to require they can't just play these games with you in your one hour a week or your one 30 minutes or 20 minutes or however long you get i mean as as a school speech pathologist you might only get to see a child 20 minutes you can't just play these little games with him one time a week and then go back again the next week and and then the next week and these one little hits expect things to get dramatically better so you've got to really really teach other people these games and talk about why they're why they're important use those five points that i listed you may have to go back and listen to the show again to get them written down because they're not in the handout better yet buy the autism workbook so you can see those and have those so that you're really talking about why this works and and giving parents and giving other uh, caregivers teachers other people that interact with this child reasons why they need to play these little games and our only goal at the beginning is just to focus on being connected and having fun and interacting now as we talk about these games I'm going to also give you uh, the the verbal piece you know what you'll be going for what the do his part looks like in some of these games is an example and if you want more of those you can certainly get those with the autism workbook but our focus right now isn't saying those words yet because we've got to get that consistent interaction that consistent eye contact that consistent staying in close physical proximity with you that consistent participation and you are both doing the same thing so we've got to get those things first before we're ever going to be before that child is ever developmentally ready to move on to learn uh, words and so again we're really working on receptive language even with these kinds of activities and we're working on uh, motor imitation even with these kinds of activities and those are foundational pre-linguistic skills that all kids need regardless of their diagnosis and so uh, they're just I hope that I've convinced you <laughs> that they're the way to go because so many clinical reasons that we should be using social games and so how do we pick two or three easy games? And earlier in my career, I would just pick the games that I thought that a kid would like, just kind of based on my own um, my own gut feeling there, my own instincts. But I've gotten smarter about this. <laughs> and we can ask ourselves some questions. And you'll find this on page two of your PDF, your handout for this week's show, if you purchase the credit. But there are five questions that are going to teach you what kinds of social games will be more effective and you can do it like I used to do it <clears throat> pick a song pick a running game pick a sitting game you can do that or <laughs> you can tailor your first attempts at this to what a child is already telling you about himself by looking at it so you're gonna again like we talked about in last week's show with meeting a child where he is, if you will, th this is just the way to go from being a good therapist who knows what to do, who does some things to work that work, to an excellent clinician because you are taking what you know about a child and then you're going to tailor your interventions or even tailor the first little social games that you pick. Uh, based on that child's sensory profile and what his needs are and also what his strengths are, what he likes. And again, that, that's what we're doing with meeting a child where he is. So I love these games. So number one question, or these questions. Number one question to ask, and you can find this second page of your handout or in the Autism Workbook, and we're in focus area two. So does a child enjoy music or singing? yes or no and kind of this the the follow-up question for that would be does a child cover his ears or complain when he hears singing so when a toddler likes music and singing you're going to begin with some songs or begin with with um 
routines that have a song kind of component. And so we'll talk about, you'll understand more about this as we go, but you can already kind of start to figure some of that out. And so this is an important question for parents that I like to ask right off the bat too, because if the answer is no, and if parents say to me, gosh, you know, he just does not like music. Every time I try to sing with him, oh my goodness. Or they'll say, I'm not much of a singer. And so I've tried to sing with him a little bit, but he, he gets mad. He puts his hand over my mouth or he covers his ears or he, uh, he just doesn't like it. He gets fussy and I stop. And so that gives us really, really important information about that child's sensory profile. So let me just ask you, is he hyperreactive or hyperreactive? He's hyperreactive because he's avoiding. He's saying, no, I don't want to hear that. And again, you have to tell parents it's not their singing voice. These are auditory sensitivities. We have to, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll have to select another type of activity. If we know singing drives a child away from us, we're not going to do it. And if we know that he likes it, we'll do it. And again, that's meeting a child where he is. So you kind of know right off the bat, should I, am I going to do songs or are we going to hold off on that and, and let's just talk about even if we're not doing songs what are some things that we can do to help children begin to normalize their auditory responses well you can try chanting these instead of singing a song instead of singing twinkle twinkle little star you could chant twinkle twinkle little star how i wonder what you are and that kind of small change and again if you're a parent if this is new to, this whole speech therapy thing is new to you. You may be thinking, she has lost her mind, but I promise you, <laughs> this works when we just change and we do these little tweaks. And so you'll be providing that melodic uh, intonation with the chanting. And that will, again, over time, help a child be able to tolerate more of that, but you haven't just gotten so in his face, so that it's so aversive to him. So that's another thing you can do. Uh, you might also try more of a sing-song style of talking, and we know from research, gosh, that's evidence-based, um, children respond, babies respond to mother ease and, so, and children in, in infancy, and so, so many of our kids, even if they are two or three, they are still down in those earliest developmental phases, so they like it. They like that sing-song. They like that chanting, even if they don't really like the singing yet, so that's that's an important thing. So you've got your answers there. Am I going to go with music or not go with music? So that'll kind of let you know uh, right away one of the things that you should be doing with social games. Second question, is this child constantly on the go? Does he like running, bouncing, or jumping? And so some of our kids with autism are, that that's their mo. That's what they they're awake. They're running right, and so we have to know them. We and we have to use that as part of a social game. We know that we should be giving them, excuse me, movement, so that they aren't running away from us to get that movement. Remember, we talked about with social games. We want to bring them to us. We want to help meet their sensory needs in the context of the social game. So if there is a kid that's constantly on the go, that's up and moving and active all the time, we know right away, oh, we better do something with movement. Third question, do we have kids who are kind of on the other end? Do they avoid uh, new sensory experiences? Are they a kid who uh, really prefers to cuddle, who likes being held, who might curl up with mom and want to twist her hair or uh, rub part of her clothing? Gosh, we've got this fly that won't leave me alone. Sorry about that. Uh, so, but does this child prefer cuddling and being held? And so for those kinds of kids, they remember what we said about them? They're hyper-reactive. So they are the sensory avoiders. So we know that we have to start with things that won't challenge that about them. Things that won't, games that won't startle them. <laughs> games that won't make them fearful and want to shut down. And usually those kinds of kids need lap games. They usually like, especially with their parents. Now with you as a therapist, sometimes this takes a little bit longer because they are, um, they look shy when really it's, I mean, well, they are, because, but it's their sensory system. And so once they learn that they can get that same physical closeness and same calming effect 
better by staying with you rather than running away from you. And so that uh, that gives you an idea of the kinds of games that you need to be playing. So we'll be looking for lap games. And uh, in a minute, I'm going to give you some ideas for these games. All right, so that was number three. Does this child prefer cuddling and being held? And, you know, you might have a kid that's constantly on the go all the time, but then they kind of crash and do like cuddling and being held. And so then you can even use this uh, in your sessions or use this if you're a parent. You'll know, well, we need to start with movement games so I can kind of get all this energy burned out of him or help his body get enough input so that he can calm down and regulate and then he likes these lap games or it might be that he is um really really upset about something or really maybe he's a little bit sick even and so these little lap games are a nice way to connect and a nice way to have that closeness and that social interaction or intimacy um one-on-one -on -one. and so so that's another good way to kind of think about this is it might be a timing thing too all right number four the fourth question that i want to ask that i'm when i'm trying to pick out games for initial games for a kid and that's this whole purpose here what can i start with so like i said last week we can get things moving in the right direction we can start off on the right foot so that i don't make this kid mad from the get-go so that he's doing everything he can to get out of there rather than to stay with me <clears throat> or and this even happens with parents too kids love their parents they want to be with their parents their parents are the most important people in the world to them but the parent tries to start to teach them something and they are gone they are out of there so social games really really help a parent again like we talked about not only providing framework for the kid but framework for the parents too because they know what to do they know that beginning middle and end of the game they know how to play it they can do it so that's another reason that we'll, you know, we're, we're, that, that's why we're looking at all these things is because we want to pick what's right. We're, we're trying to get that just right balance for that child. What's going to make it easier for him to interact with me and easier for him to stay with me? So fourth question here, is it hard to get and keep a child's attention? And if that's the case, what does that tell you? You're going to need short games. You aren't going to need to sing five verses of, Whatever song you've picked, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. You know, you're not going to pick a long song that has so many verses. She can't stay with you through that. You know that about that child. And so that's something that we'll take into consideration. So you're going to need really, really simple, easy starter routines for that child. Lastly, a question that you ask for selecting your initial social games or initial kinds of things that you'll do together that again your your purpose is getting that social interaction piece started does a child have definitive topics of interest that he really really likes and that holds his attention and restricted interest are just again one of the characteristics of autism they have fixations they have obsessions and that's what the professional literature calls it and so don't feel like if you're a therapist if you're saying your child is obsessed with that or there's an obsession you know again that's not a derogatory word that's coming straight from the professional literature um, so does the kid have that does he love letters does he love thomas does he love spoons <laughs> whatever it is that he loves You'll need to try to figure out a game or a song or a way so that you can use that little interest as your way in, like we talked about before. So if there's a kid, let's go back to letters. If there's a kid that loves letters, a lot of times singing the ABC song, I'm not singing that with him because I want to teach him the letters of the alphabet. I'm singing that with him because that's what he likes and because that gets his attention. And so as he's running around the room and I can't get his attention and he's he's doing everything he can, like I said before, to get away from me, I start singing A, B, C, D, E, F, G and doing some little pauses and th some things that we'll talk about too that that are more likely to pique his attention. Uh, that's going to really really help you. That's going to be really really valuable information for you. And sometimes with these things with 
uh, kids that they'll have a definitive topic of interest that you're going to have a really hard time coming up with a little social game for. But more often than not, you're going to be able to find a way to use a child's natural interest or what he automatically gravitates to as, again, a way to start uh, interacting with him and as a way to start that back and forth, um, that participation that you want him to do. So ask those five questions and you'll find this listed on the second page of this handout. Does he like music? Yes or no. Is he constantly on the go? Yes or no. Does he prefer cuddling and being held? Yes or no. Is it hard to get her attention? Yes or no. Does he have definitive topics of interest? Um, that he prefers? Yes or no. And so you take that information and then you decide what games can I do? What songs can I do? What does that tell me about him? So in Autism Workbook, I've taken those questions and I've made some suggestions for starting points. And so I've got the categories here designed on the answers, uh, based on the answers to the questions that we just did. So let's run through a few of these. So we talked about them as we went, but let me give you some specific examples. So let's go back to number one. Does a child enjoy music or singing? So if he does, you'll know that you want to get as many little songs as you can um, that you are going to, that are fun for that child. That's, and how do you know if it's fun for the child? Does he stop and listen? And let me just say, sometimes you're going to have to sing it and play the games and do the games over and over and over again before you'll see any inkling of recognition. And recognition comes long before a kid likes it. Remember what we said before that we just have to get a kid familiar with it. And especially kids with autism, a lot of times reject things that are new because they don't understand it. And they have that preference for sameness. So you might have to do it. I mean, sometimes I'll play a game five or six times in a session in a row, and then we'll go do something else, and then I'll play it five or six more times in a row, and then we'll go and do something else, and then play it, you can say it now, five or six times in a row, and then we'll go do something else, and a mom might say, they hardly ever say it at the beginning. They hardly ever say the first time or two, he hates that, I can't believe you keep doing it, or I don't know why you're doing that, he he, he has no interest in that. But you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And and I don't mean like if they're screaming, trying to get away from you, and it, they hate it. I'm not meaning that. I just mean that there's no real interest. There's no real participation. They're just kind of take it or leave it. Just keep doing it because you've got to make it familiar to them. And so what a lot of times what parents will do, I told you they won't be rude right off the bat and say, he hates that. Why are you doing that? It's that third or fourth week when he starts to like it that parents will say you know he really likes that game he's I can see why you did that I or they might say I thought you were really crazy at the beginning when you just kept trying to get him to play ring around the roses and he did not want to play with you or you just kept throwing yourself down on the floor <laughs> trying to play night night with him and he wasn't even looking at you um and it may not be that extreme, but they'll they'll say, I didn't think he was going to like that, and now he does. And so that's the point. You've got to play it enough so that a kid knows that he starts to like it. And so let me say one more word about this. You've got to really play. You can't just be bump on a log, uh, you know, singing a song like, you know, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. You cannot do that. You have got to be all in. And I used to tell people when I first started working, you know, when I did a lot of home visits, I would say, listen, if we are not so animated and so into this, so that if the neighbor came and looked in, if they were not shocked or surprised or embarrassed or thought we were crazy, it, we're not doing it right. And so you've got to, again, be all in there. And some parents are so naturally into that, and some parents aren't. You know, that's just our natural personality, or sometimes we as adults just get so locked into being grown up that we really have forgotten how to play. And so how, what I do when I have a parent like this is I just go for it, and I just say, you know, I'm not doing this because I love it, but 
you know, I really do. But telling a parent, this is the only way that we, that's going to make a difference for this kid with autism. And we don't want to scare a kid. Now, if you've got a kid who, like we talked about before, those hyper-responsive kids who are the avoiders, you know, who you start to sing or you start to be kind of loud and animated and they shut down. You don't want to do that. But at the same time, you've got to be fun and playful enough. And as I always say, ratchet it up a notch so that uh, kids will pay attention. And it's got to be outside of their normal, what they normally see and what they normally do. And if you think about kids who love videos or who love screen time, they're usually watching very animated uh, shows or songs or something like that. And so to really compete with that, you know, we've got to be all in. So, you know, for little songs, like if, you, if you're happy and you know it, we've, we've started talking about songs that work. Uh Itsy Bitsy Spider, Wheels on the Bus. These are all just these classic little children's songs that have a lot of hand motions. And the reason that we want to do hand motions, remember what we said before, is because we're teaching them to do their part. And why are we teaching them to do their part? There are two reasons. We have receptive language. We want them to start to know what a word means and assign meaning to it and do something based on that. And so if they start to hear clap your hands and they clap, you know, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And they start to clap with that with you in imitation of you. Eventually, you can sing that part of the song, the clap your hand part, and they're going to do it without you. So that's the receptive language part. And then remember, we talked about the motor imitation piece. And so when they are clapping with you, when they are doing, you know, wheels on the bus, when they're rolling their little fists like wheels on the bus, they are copying your motor imitation. And remember what we said about that before. Kids don't learn how to verbally imitate until they learn how to to imitate motorically. And so we want to be sure that we are giving them ways to learn how to do what's been so hard for them. And we know it's been hard for them or else they would have already been doing it. They would already be doing a lot of hand motions and songs and because that's what kids do. They would be verbally imitating because kids learn how to talk about the time that they turn one, right? And so we have to make this easier for him, for them. And so like we talked about before, we're, we're pulling all of this information in to just do everything we can to set the stage for these children to learn how to interact because we have to teach them how to interact before we can teach them how to communicate. So if we know that a kid likes songs, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pick a few little songs and we're going to sing them over and over and over and over. And let me just say, in Autism Workbook, I have just a few little children's songs in there. But if you really need some children's songs and you really need, don't remember those hand motions and you really aren't sure how to break break it down so that you can teach them the hand motions and really get them to imitate, uh, those kinds of things over, gosh, probably dozens into hundred. There's probably a hundred different songs and games in Teach Me to Play With You. So look at that book if you need that resource. So you're going to pick these little songs. You are going to happily sing and model the hand motions. You're going to get a kid's attention. If he's running around the room, you're going to try to get between him and you. Usually if a kid likes singing, you start to sing and you're singing, that music will stop him in his tracks and he will want to pay attention and want to know what you're doing. And then eventually you're going to see him start to do some of these little things too. Now, physical assistance is really important for a lot of these kids, but you can't do it in a way that drives them away from you. So with a game or a song, like if you're happy and you know it, you know, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And if they don't do that after the first few times, just reach out, get their little hands and help them clap. Now, don't do it in a way that's so forceful that you immediately drive them away from you, but don't do it in a way also that's so wishy-washy that they don't get that you really want them to clap their hands too. And don't, you know, be tickly or anything. Firm pressure is always more calming and more regulating than light pressure. That's too alerting for a lot of kids. And so help them perform the hand motions as best you can. If that makes them mad, back off a little bit, do it a little bit differently next time, but see if you can get that going. One other thing uh, with songs especially, and when we're going to try to have kids fill in the word, is we'll do that kind of pregnant pause. And we can do this for even anticipating that they will do the actions with a song too, but you have to sing it. So let's say that you've sung, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And let's add another verse or two. Let's do stomp your feet. 
and maybe shout yay. So you've done that several times. And then what do you do to get a kid to start um, to clap his hands? If you haven't done the physical assistance, just stop. Just sing. You're going to sing the first part, and then you're just going to pause there so that they can fill in the blank. This is kind of this is called the close method. You can do it verbally or non-verbally uh, to get a response, a verbal or a non-verbal response from a kid. But you would you would just do your anticipatory body. Um, uh, body language with that so your face you know if you're happy and you know what clap your hands and you're waiting and you're looking at them and you're doing everything you can to set it up like I expect you to do this and then if they don't do it there you clap your hands and if he's not clapping his hands reach out and clap his little hands but keep it going don't take 15 minutes to <laughs> get that started you've got to kind of do all this pretty quickly and hopefully your clinical instincts with the therapist you're going to realize when you should move forward when you should back off and teach parents those things say you know as we're singing this little song with him if you could just wait let's just hold off a little bit and just see if he'll clap himself and so those little those little cues and that again your clinical instincts as a therapist we've got to teach parents how to read these cues and what we look for and the best way to do it is just by by telling them as you're doing it so let's say you're doing a teletherapy session and you're trying to get some of these social things going social games going and you use the song like um it's the holidays i have jingle bells written in here let's let's say that you know in another month or so you're going to do that and you you know you've you've the kid likes music and you know they have musical instruments and everything and so you've introduced the song and you're watching even over a teletherapy visit you can say to mom hey when you're singing that song with him this time just pause for a little bit you know as i was watching him sing that last time I think he's about to do it. I think he's about to shake the little bells himself. So this time, hold hold back a little bit. And my point here is you are talking a parent through your own clinical uh, skill-making decisions and, and how you do it. And so you're going to teach them how to do it. So those were songs. Let's move and get through the rest of these categories. I'm, I'm, I want to give you some more examples. So question number two, is this child constantly on the go? And so what do you know about that? Well, you better give him a way to involve you in that movement. So what are some movement things you can do? You can play ready, set, go with a kid like that so that you're holding him if necessary at the beginning and saying, ready, set, Go! And then let him go, and he runs, and you run, and you do everything you can to keep up with him. And you might say, go, 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 as you're running. And uh, this is a good game to even start with kids who have no regard for you. <laughs> uh, initially, when they're running, you try to do everything you can to get get beside them as you're running, and then hold them for a little bit, and say, ready, set, go, and then run again. And can you see how you've taken an activity that he already wants to do, which is running, and you've made yourself a part of that, and you've also layered some language on there. So after you've played this 20 times, however long you think it takes for the kid that he's really gotten into it, he's not too resistant, he's letting you hold him for go or somehow keep him back, or he's got enough self-control that he can maybe stand there with you before he runs as you say, ready, set, and then pause to see if he'll say go because uh, this especially for kids with autism these little well any child these little routines really set up beautiful opportunities for them to start to fill in that expected word so a game like rocket ship where you are putting a child on, you know you're on your back with your feet on the floor and your knees up and the kids on your knees and you're having him fly like a rocket and you might you start the game with saying rockets you want to play rockets and so then he gets on your legs and you, you however you play it you know i play three two one blast off and then you know hold the kid up or throw let the kid come over my head you know throw him back however you play but again your your components are getting the kid involved with you and saying the same thing every time you play and you are giving him that movement chances are he's going to run to try to get back on your legs initiate that game again with you and want to play that game again with you so that's those would be examples of uh, movement games or kids say a kid who want who really calms with swinging 
who loves swinging, you might get a blanket and just have him get in it and, and you and the mom and then say, you know, ready, set, go, or one, two, three, whatever you're going to do. If he loves numbers, count at the beginning and then just swing him. And then at the end, you know, toss him on the couch. And, and if he likes to count, you might count to 10 and you're going to stop that game with a little crash on the couch. And you can work in whatever your key words are with saying we or go or three or whatever it is there. So use that movement game there. Our third category does the child prefer cuddling and being held you're going to need some lap games so the lap games that work really well for me are like ride a little horse seat or even a game like row row your boat or a game like be my baby where you hold a child like a baby and you and you have him and you just sing baby 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 and again not all kids like these but these are games for sensitive kids who like that cuddling who just who just you know melt in your arms that they they need that closeness with you and so that might be a little game that you would play with them and remember you're going to have your beginning your middle and your end so that the kid learns how to do it and learns what comes next and eventually we want him doing whatever it is so the kids uh part in a game like be my baby is just to smile with you and make eye contact and stay there in your arms as you rock him or um you know, you ask him, are you going to be my baby? His game, his his response in that game might be shaking his head like, yes, yes, I, I want to do that. So any little game like that for your clothes. Um, if we have kids, they're, it's hard to get and keep their attention, which was uh, category number four. We know we better go simple with these kids. And so games like high five, games like patty cake, games like tickling games with getcha, 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 where you say, here, come tickle fingers and you tickle them and then you back off and you're ready for them to do it again their part of the game might be lifting up their shirt it might be uh you might even have a little tease where they try to get away from you but then they eventually come back whatever your little routine is there and so you've got to figure out what the child's part is and what your part is and then repeat 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 so that the child one primarily learns to stay with you and then secondly learns to do her part and then thirdly we hope that we're going to turn that into a word now I know that I have crammed so much information into this hour and I hope that I've left you with knowing that social games are such an important starting point for children with autism because we've got to get that um, interaction piece going before we have any dream of teaching them how to understand what words mean or to use words to communicate with others purposefully. And social games are just such a nice way to get your foot in the door, to have a child learn to like you and be with you so that he will eventually want to learn from you. Now, if you need more information about this, you can get it in the Autism Workbook, Developing Speech Therapy Treatment Plans for Toddlers and Preschoolers with Red Flags for ASD. And you can find that exclusively at my website at teachmetotalk.com and the information is right there below in the post and you can also get information um, about the $5 CEU credit for therapists or if you're a parent you don't even understand what CEU credit is but you just know you want this handout purchase that show uh, credit and you'll get the handout and you don't have to worry about all that other stuff uh, but the link again is right there below the post all right thanks so much for joining me I'm Laura Mize pediatric speech language pathologist and you've just watched or listened to teach me to talk the podcast have a great week Thank you.